Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Arab Spring, a series of revolutions that spread across the Arab world, is reaching its 10th year, depending on whether you believe it is still continuing as a process. A single act of immolation from a desperate vegetable seller in Tunisia set the region alight. The fall of Ben Ali, followed by Mubarak and others, was hailed as a truly epochal moment in world history. But like all historical shifts, this was not going to be easy, and early optimism made way for a deep realism and scepticism as the autocrats mounted their own counter-coup and international actors concluded that the old Cold War rationale to turn a blind eye to tyrants in exchange for stability re-emerged as the doctrine that guided Western capitals even when their public rhetoric suggested otherwise. If Syria stands as a lesson, it is that once a conflict turns into a military struggle, the opposition loses control over the narrative. Certainly, no one at the time would have estimated just how bloody the civil war would become, but the inclusion of regional and international actors into the bloody mix made it impossible for anyone but Assad to succeed. We at The Thinking Muslim are using this milestone to evaluate these past 10 difficult years. We have interviewed two guests that broadly reflect the concerns of Islamic groups but who have digested the sober reality. And if you haven't, I would very much suggest you listen to both Dr. Azam Tamimi and Dr. Uthman Bakash. Both in their own way argued that the Islamic project became too exclusive and a broad platform was not created. Instead, more parochial partisan concerns took over. This episode, I speak at length to the Arab Spring activist Iyad al-Baghdadi about his valuable experience, analysis and forecast. He rose to prominence in the aftermath of the Arab revolutions of 2011 before being summarily arrested and forcibly exiled from his home in the UAE in April 2014. Today he is recognised amongst the most influential and prominent Arab voices online. 
He lives in Oslo, Norway, where he has been granted political asylum and writes regularly for both Norwegian and international media. He is also founder and editor-in-chief of the Arab Tyrant Manual, a platform for the study of authoritarian behavior and tactics. Iyad's perspective is critical if we are to learn the lessons from the past decade. Certainly, his views may differ from my previous two guests, but his analysis is as important for thinkers and activists. I would add, if the Muslim Ummah is to find a way forward, then we have to, as much as possible, learn to build as broad a platform and develop ways to accommodate viewpoints, a philosophy badly lacking, and a contributing factor to the decline, albeit temporarily, of the past decade. We too easily label people who do not agree with us, cast in broad categories of Islamists or liberal, as an excuse to dismiss one another. Yet behind these labels, there is nuance. I found Brother Iyad to have a deep concern for the region and the Ummah at large. I would advise all listeners to listen to the end, where he directly tackles the role of Islam and ideology. Well, Brother Iyad Al Baghdadi, Assalamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah, and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Alaikum Assalam wa Rahmatullah, Jalal. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. And how, how are you today? Alhamdulillah. And and you're in Oslo, right? Uh, you're currently residing in in Oslo. What what brought you to Oslo, um, uh, Iyad? Uh, well, it it was uh, quite a, a long and complicated story. But uh, in in 2014, I was I was arrested in my former country, the United Arab Emirates, where I used to live. And uh, being Palestinian, of course, uh, when they uh, when they want to expel you, there was an order for my expulsion. Uh, which came from higher powers. Uh, that's all I was told. I was not really told. I was not really charged with anything, and I was not really told who, um, you know, who wanted me out and why. Um, but uh, there was an order for my arrest uh, and my expulsion. And uh, because there was nowhere, you know, I'm Palestinian, um, and there's nowhere to send me back to. Uh, as a result, I was sent to prison and uh, eventually managed to convince uh, the prison authorities to to send me to Malaysia, um, where I lived in the airport for a month, um, not being able to, you know, to to enter Malaysia, not being able to leave anywhere else. Um, complicated story, but eventually I, uh, I managed to come to Norway. I was invited to speak at the human rights conference. Um, and um, it just happened that, uh, um, you know, I was actually invited to this conference before I was arrested. Um, the the conference actually took place, or it was scheduled to take place at the same time that I was in prison. But uh, luckily for me, there was a, a strike. There was a, a hotel strike in Norway, in Oslo, um, and as a result, the conference was shifted, and that gave me gave me enough time to kind of um, you know uh, be able to schedule my my my, uh, my myself in such a way that I was able to get out of prison. Um, uh, get out of the airport, go to Malaysia, uh, get the, the the proper paperwork, and then eventually come to Norway as a guest. And uh, eventually, after that, I uh, applied for asylum, um, got my family, the rest of my family, out of the United Arab Emirates, and uh, here I am now. I live. Uh, this is where I live now, and I guess it's not uh, it's not the worst place to live given given all the options. And you were arrested, uh, Brother Yard, because of your activism, and I suppose. More specifically, your online activities in relation to the Egyptian revolution at that time. Can you tell us a little bit more? Did they 
explain the grounds uh, for your arrest? What I was literally told, I mean, of course, that is correct, but, you know, uh, they would never actually tell you the reason. Um, they consider it to be almost, I mean, literally what they literally told me is that you should figure out what you did. Uh, but it was clear that, you know, it was clear that I had kind of a tense, situa tense relationship with them. Um, I actually received my first warning uh, shortly after Mubarak was ousted. Um, kind of like a reminder that, you know, you should know that uh, there's, a, there's a roof, there's a, there's a ceiling to free expression in this country. Um, and, you know, looking back at those years between 2011 and 2014, um, you know, I was quite, uh, I was quite, I, I don't want to use the word reckless, but kind of I pushed my limit. Uh, I, um, you know, I, I kind of prioritized, I was, I was, I prioritized free expression and really speaking out my mind. Um, and, you know, when I was in prison, it was a tough situation because um, uh, the options in front of me were very bleak. It was either, you know, I, I had a refugee travel document that was issued by Egypt. Um, and had I been sent back to Egypt by the UAE's authorities, I, had been dis I would have been disappeared. I would have been tortured to death in one of Sisi's dungeons. Um, and nobody would have even heard, heard about me, heard of what happened to me after that and probably disappeared. Uh, the other option, of course, would be that the UAE would uh, think of a reason to put me in prison, like try to justify why I'm in prison. Uh, and eventually they'll charge me with a crime and then I'd be in prison for 10 years or so. So given, you know, given all of the options, I guess expulsion was kind of the, the least worst option. But, but let's talk about the Arab Spring. I mean, many uh, say that the Arab Spring is now over and, and um, uh, the optimism uh, that fell in 2011 and, and uh, throughout the early period of that decade has been replaced with a, a deep pessimism. Uh, now, you've written that the, the region remains a tinderbox and the frustrations haven't gone away. What is your proof of this? Well, I, I tend to look at the Arab Spring not really as an event that happened in 2011. I mean, uh, in, in, the, in, in your initial question, um, you were asking... Um, Basically, what do you think? Do you think it's succeeded or failed? But I think another question could be, what is the Arab Spring? How do you define it? Um, and I, I tend not to look at it really as, a, as an event of, in 2011, but rather as a phase, as an intergenerational transition that started in 2011. Um, I really look at this as a 30-year process, as, as a life, basically the lifespan of a generation. And we're 10 years into a 30-year process. Uh, Early in such uh, transitions, there's always this feeling of, uh, uh, of inevitability. There's a feeling that uh, our, our, our victory is, uh, is very near, and there's a sense that um, you know, we're unstoppable. This is, this is something that happened not only with the Arab Spring, but uh, this is recorded across uprisings. Um, the thing about intergenerational transitions especially democratic transitions where a people who had no political agency come to gain political agency, uh, these things take time. They, they rarely ever happen overnight. A lot of the observers, uh, especially the Western observers, uh, looking at the Arab Spring, by the way, so, so you know, like the whole thing starts in December 20, 2010 uh, in Tunisia. And uh, it continues through, uh, you know, through Egypt, uh, Yemen, Libya, Syria. There is like out of 22 Arab countries, there are 20 countries that had uprisings over that period. It was in July of 2011, very, very close to the beginning. 
that a panel on BBC uh, was put together and they actually contacted me and they're like, we want to put together a panel about the failure of the Arab Spring. So it was July. Imagine that in July 2011, they were already speaking about the failure of the Arab Spring. And that kind of prompted me to think, what is it about Western observers of the Arab Spring that made them think that this is a matter of a few weeks? Um, and I, the, right now, what I think is that their model for a democratic transition was really 1989. They were looking at the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and how a lot of Eastern Europe uh, kind of really flipped into the Western model at the time, which is not only democracy, but also capitalism. Um, and uh, at the time, of course, it, it seemed like a, like, 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 the, like a flip of a switch, you know, all, all of a sudden, all of these countries that were communist for a very long time uh, suddenly, you know, joined, you know, joined the rest of Europe. Um, and I believe that that was a very uh, blinkered view. They, um, so, so, I mean, there's, there's several reasons why, why this is so. I think one of the most important reasons really is that in 1989, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Western model had come out on top. It was kind of reigning supreme, right? So like the opposite of the USSR was, uh, you know, the, the, the so-called liberal world order. Um, you know, democracy, capitalism, free markets, etc. So, for a lot of pe people in Eastern Europe, it was kind of clear what the what the option was. What was the, what was the like? Now that we're not communists, what are we going to be? It was kind of ob ob obvious. We're going to be uh, the same. The guys who won, which is you know the Western Bloc. This was not at all clear in 2011. In 2011, like the Western model was, you know creating crisis after crisis. I mean, we, we had just emerged from the 2008 Great Recession, right? Uh, the financial crash, and there were like, uh, you know, really worrying signs about where this model is going in the first place. That was just one, of, oh, oh, I mean, we can, we can discuss the other, the other reasons, but this is just one reason. But I think that the whole thing is that um, they underestimated how easy or how difficult it is for such an enormous geopolitical shift to take place. Because keep in mind, the Arab world, I mean, even if we, we speak beyond the Arab world, we're speaking about the MENA region, Middle East of North Africa. You're talking about a block of maybe 25, 26 countries, depending on how you count it, because this is like, it's a fluid definition, really. Uh, but you're really talking about almost 700 million people. That's more than the population of the United States and more than the population of the, the European Union. It's a large block of people. If such a, a large area and a large block of people gain political legitimacy, gain political agency, really for the first time in history, in, in many cases, this is an enormous geopolitical event. And it's going to be pushing against very deeply entrenched political uh, and geopolitical forces that, that benefit from the fact that this region does not have political agency. And so this is not something that can happen in a year or two, or, or you know, even, uh, I believe, not even in a decade or two. It's going to take, this is, this is a great shift. Um, so I think that a lot of the observers really did not appreciate that this is not going to be easy. And especially Europeans, they forgot what Europe's transition to democracy looked like. You know, like Europe's transition to democracy was two world wars and 100 million people dead. Um, and even then, it was not complete. You know, you, you can argue that it really 
completed you know after the, the fall of the soviet union and even now you know you, you have like a, an uprising in belarus for example that's also a european country so i think that the whole idea about success or failure and uh, reducing it to only 2011 um is is uh, is inaccurate it's it's also unfair but going back to the whole point of you know that resentments continue to be i mean you can see that uh, even though we had, um, you know, we had a reversal in 2013-2014 with the rise of the counter-revolutionary axis, um, you know, spearheaded by the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, who decided that, you know, they're not going to allow uh, a democratic transition in the region and they're going to fight against it and with everything they, go they could. Um, especially, of course, the, the first strike was in Egypt because Egypt is such an important country. It's like 100 million people. Um, and Egypt is that one country that if you have a successful transition away from dictatorship in Egypt, it's going to change uh, the region. That's an interesting point you make. So the failure in the world system uh, was uh, exploited by these actors. But, but I wonder to what extent did the United States predict that and, and did the United States allow this vacuum to open up in the Middle East, which effectively led to chaos and anarchy? Uh, the world order itself was in a very bad shape even before the Arab Spring. Um, I believe the order has been hypocritical for a very long time. It kind of preached the idea that this is a free world and this is a liberal world order, etc., while actually it was an extremely hypocritical world order. It was freedom and justice for some. Um, and we were always excluded. Um, and so, I mean, the... the between 2015 2016 with the rise of the right wing, right wing nationalism wave uh you know first with the brexit vote in in uh, in the united kingdom and then with the rise of trump and everything that came with trump you know because trump was also um, uh, um you know he had a lot of allies across the world including the united arab emirates and saudi arabia and israel um and other you know and putin and other uh, forces that uh, that wanted to use him kind of as as a hammer to smash this order and also to to give them uh, to help them implement a certain agenda that uh, they, they exploited. You make a very interesting point about the world order. Can I ask you to unpick that for a second? Um, if the Arab Spring was not looking towards Western models, then uh, where was the Arab Spring in its initial stages pointing in terms of uh, ideas and uh, political values? Um, it wasn't only the Arab Spring that that uh, that suffered. Uh, the entire world order started to break apart, and this had, uh, you know, th this. Uh, I, I believe that the, the breakage of the, the 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 world order, you know, the, the the world already had some real intrinsic problems. It had real real contradictions that had to be resolved one way or the other. Um, and I believe that the fabric of this world order really started to rip. It had to rip somewhere. And it, it started to rip, I believe, in Syria. Um, uh, you know, with the rise of, you know, with, with the extreme brutality of Assad, with the failure of the world to take any action, uh, you know, a world, a world order that preached uh, justice and equality and, and freedom, etc., just sat there and watched the slaughter in Syria. And of course, eventually, when we had ISIS, suddenly they wanted to intervene. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we don't have to go over the, the details of what happened after that. Of course, it was an enormous tragedy in Syria. Uh, but then on the heel of that, you know, you have this rise 
of, uh, of, of Russia, of Putin. Of course, he exploited this whole situation. We have also the rise of, uh, of in, um, in Saudi Arabia, of Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and then we had the rise of this right-wing wave, uh, which, was, which was sweeping across uh, European nations themselves. Um, but then, you know, despite all of that, you had 2018, 2019 come along, and then you had another wave of uprisings in, in the Middle East of North Africa. You had uh, an uprising in Sudan, in Algeria. You had renewed protests in Egypt. You had an uprising in Lebanon. You had an uprising in uh, Iraq. Um, and you actually had even continuing continuing uh, continuing uh, 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 protests in Syria and also in Gaza, in Palestine. Uh, and so, as the second wave has already come, uh, and it actually resulted in in the change of government in Sudan and Algeria. And you know, Algeria and Sudan are kind of in transition right now. Um, and you had kind of a, a incomplete uprisings in Lebanon and Iraq because, you know, eventually it was the corona, uh, the pandemic that kind of had, uh, forced a stop to the protest wave. Uh, so, you know, when I say it wasn't, it's not over, I'm really simply stating the facts. The fact is that every problem that we had that led to the Arab Spring uh, uh, starting, kicking off in 2010, 2011, it got only worse by, 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 uh, by 2020. So the trends have not actually, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing in the system that made it more sustainable. In fact, it's actually become more unsustainable. The ruling elites have become even more detached from the will of the, from, from the consent of the population. They've become even more uh, tyrannical. And they, you know, in many cases, they're actually trying very hard to, to, uh, to find a source of legitimacy, which is uh, separated, even more separated from their own people. Um, and so, I mean, like I say, I mean, it's going to continue to be, you know, you, you look at the region and you see, um, you see the following, you see some countries which have authoritarian consolidation, some countries have democratic transitions, some countries have proxy wars, uh, you have refugee waves, terror, terror waves, uh, you have certain countries which are uh, in stagnation, you know, uh, you have some countries which are which are in, in popular uprising. Uh, so it's it's like it's it's as if the whole region is boiling over with uh, you know some some places being um, uh, showing you know resilience and resistance, and some places showing stagnation and authoritarian consolidation. And what I'm arguing really, what I argue uh, uh, a lot is that this is uh, this is going to be with us for a while. This, this is what a democratic transition actually looks like. It, it looks like a lot of instability. It's not a, an orderly affair. And it's not a linear affair either. That's really interesting, uh, except uh, you, uh, and you alluded to it in your answer, that um, uh, the international community have um, almost concluded, it seems to me, uh, at least when it comes to America and, and most of Europe, that the idealism that they initially uh, had when they supported the Arab Spring has now made way for for realism um, and an acceptance of uh, the strong men uh, in government and and not only an acceptance but a, a tacit uh, and an explicit support for these strong men and and I suppose my my question is to what extent um, can um, people power uh, uh, public discontent compete with an international community that uh, you know, has consolidated and, and, and preserves and uh, gives uh, approval to regimes uh, that are, are, are ready to uh, engage in the most 
barbarous acts of repression in order to keep uh, the status quo as it is? Well, uh, let me go back first and, and really scan the international reaction to the Arab Spring. To, to, to first, I mean, to set up the, the answer, I want to really uh, emphasize the fact that the entire region, almost the entire region, has been colonized, especially by two, two uh, Western nations, the United Kingdom and France. Uh, this was, of course, before in the first, uh, first half of the, I mean, the, the decolonization or, uh, uh, what do you say, the, the end of formal colonialism really happened after the Second World War, mostly after the Second World War. Um, and of course, these were, um, uh, I mean, in, uh, the, the, the experience of the, uh, the people of the region with colonialism kind of varied from country to country. So, of course, for example, in, in, in Algeria, it was, uh, it was much more repressive than, let's say, in uh, other, other parts of the region, like, for example, the United Arab Emirates and, uh, and, and the Gulf states, which were kind of British protectorates, but there wasn't this, uh, you know, kind of settler colonialism there. Um, so the, the experience kind of with colonialism varied, but the one thing that was perhaps the most damaging about colonialism, colonialism really is not just a matter of occupation. The colonialist doesn't just come to your country and take it over and exploits its natural resources and exploits its people. Uh, there's also the colonial narrative, and the colonial narrative, what it says is, not only are, uh, are we in charge, but you are not good enough to run your own affairs, and this is why we have to run your affairs for you. Um, and if you go back and see the narratives that were employed at the time, I mean, when, when, people, when, when, uh, when the people of our region asked for independence, what they were being told were, you are not ready for self-rule. They were literally being told that you cannot govern yourself. You are not good enough to govern yourself. You are not good enough to have any kind of political agency. Um, and uh, I kind of relate that, of course, eventually after the Second World War, uh, it was obvious that the colonizing nations, the, the France uh, and then, you know, Italy, for example, had colonies itself. It, it, was, it had colonized uh, Libya um, and, you know, parts of the Horns of Africa. The, these these uh, uh, Western nations, I mean, if, if perhaps the most jarring part about colonialism is that France and the United Kingdom, at the time that they were colonizing this region, were actually democratic nations at home. And this is part of the racist narrative of colonialism. You know, colonialism is essentially racist because it's saying we deserve self-rule, we get to rule ourselves, we get political agency, but you don't. You're not ready for it. You have to basically jump through hoops and become more like us before we can give you a political agency. Um, so this, is, this was the colonial narrative. And like I said, before, after the Second World War, uh, these countries are, of course, really, uh, uh, you know, bankrupted by the Second World War, and you know they could not really afford to keep the colonies. So that kind of played in to. I mean, I don't think that they would have given up the colonies had they not had there not been a Second World War. Uh, but eventually, um, you know, there was a wave of decolonization. But we had the rise of something else. We had the rise of what I call neocolonialism, and under neocolonialism. It's not so much that they are directly ruling you, but they are, so, so they're still employing the same narrative. But instead of saying you are not ready for self-rule, they're saying you're not ready for democracy. And instead of ruling you directly, they are selling weapons and they're selling, you know, they're giving all kinds of support to your dictator. So instead of the old colonial narrative, which is that we rule you and you don't get to rule yourself, you have neocolonialism, which is basically 
um, you know, maybe we don't rule you directly, but we support your dictator, and your dictator is the one who says you're not ready for democracy, and we're fine with that. Um, so this is basically just setting the stage. So before I get into how did the world react when 2011 happened, uh, they were reluctant. I mean, uh, it wasn't exactly that they immediately were supportive of the Arab Spring. In fact, uh, if you look at the early reaction from, you know, the U.S. State Department, from the United Kingdom, from France, etc., to the uprisings, it was actually confusion because nobody predicted it. Nobody actually knew that this was going to happen. And in, initially, they were like, how are we going to react? Are we going to stand by, you know, Mubarak was a very important ally of the West. Bin Ali was a very important ally of the West. So, you know, so how do we react here? And it was really only because events, uh, you know, uh, proceeded so fast uh, and Bin Ali basically was gone, be you know, by before the end of January. And then, you know, Mubarak was gone before, before you know, before mi the middle of February. Events happened so fast that a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these Western nations had to uh, change their course. They had to, they were forced to change their course because of the speed of the events. Uh, and you're right, you know, by 2012, 20, uh, 2013, this kind of cynicism kind of crept back in. Uh, honestly, I don't think it's only cynicism. Honestly, I think there's a big dose of racism in there uh, because suddenly, you know, basically we have to be perfect. We have to be picture perfect. We have to transition to democracy within a few weeks and we have to look exactly like what they want us to be. Otherwise, we're not worth, uh, you know, uh, standing up for. Um, but then again, I mean, the thing is, I mean, I, I, I can be a little bit cynical about the Western role over here, but I think it's also that um, foreign policy, the foreign policy for, for, of a lot of countries is really complicated. It's complicated by precedent, by previous relationships, by, you know, intersecting alliances, uh, by shifting priorities, etc. Um, and I think for that reason, uh, sometimes it kind of trends towards uh, the most uh, safe, the, kind of like they play safe and they, they play cynical, really. Uh, and there was, you know, they, between 2013, especially between 2013 and 2014, it seemed like nobody had any leverage over these dictators. Uh, especially, I'm talking, of course, the dictators that led the assault against the Arab Spring, which, which, is, which are led basically by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Um, they, I guess the United States could have stopped them. Uh, this was the Obama administration. Of course, Obama was very interested at the time in uh, in kind of uh, uh, having a, a kind of uh, um, uh, improved relationships, you know, opening up relationships with Iran, etc. He was looking at a different uh, future for the relationship between the between the United States and the region. He wanted to kind of like, you know, the United States basically is kind of sickened. I mean, a lot of the population of the United States. I'm not talking about the, uh, the politicians there, but a lot of the population of the United States are really sick and tired of the endless wars that the United States has been involved in for a very long time. Um, and they simply don't want, they want out, you know, they don't want uh, America to be involved in wars and, uh, you know, either for good or bad in this region. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, this is going to continue to be the case. I think whether it's Obama, whether it's Trump, whether it's, you know, whoever comes after Trump, it's still going to be the same case that America is going to be retreating. And this of course opens a, a door. Whenever a, a big actor pulls out, it opens a vacuum. Um, and of course, this vacuum has been exploited by uh, by certain dictatorships, but also by by Russia, also by terror groups, um, and also, of course, by the Iranian regime and its proxies and militias. Uh, so it's been an extremely chaotic period of time, 
uh, and I don't blame anyone for being confused about what's happening, which is why it's always important to go back to fundamentals and go back to centering your own people. Uh, because in the end, I mean, uh, maybe this comes to, to, your, to your answer about uh, is people power enough? Um, look, the only thing that can change uh, the world order is if the people who are excluded, who have been systematically excluded by the world order, gather enough power so that the the so that you know so that they cannot be ignored anymore um for that reason you don't need only uh people on the streets you need you need a consistency of effort in other words you need to be pushing together you need to create a co coalitions which are as big and as big as possible that push together towards political agency i want to i want to understand the uh the current role of the dictators in in the uh, arab and, and muslim world in general now um, uh, you're right in, in arguing that uh, there was uh, confusion in uh, uh, Western uh, uh, capitals, and um, for a period of time uh, there was uh, there was some support, and, and then that support was was um, uh, was reined back when when they saw um, uh, the pot potential uh, impact of that support, uh, but. Uh, uh, it seems not that it's settled in uh, Western capitals that uh, the dictators are here to stay, and and you're right, you know, it it uh, probably comes from a very, from a colonial attitude that uh, it's impossible for them to govern themselves, and so it's better that uh, we 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 continue the Cold War strategy of just emboldening the the strong men, because at least they can uh, keep some level of stability. Uh, in you know over these uh, this population, but I wonder to what extent was was much of that informed by the threat of uh, of Islamic parties coming to to power. Um, I mean, Shadi Hamid talks a, a lot about this that um, if you allow for free and fair elections in any of the Arab countries, the likelihood is that the population will support one Islamic group or another, and and that probably will lead to a Muslim Brotherhood type of government, as we saw in Egypt, and and I wondered to what extent uh, had did the Americans come to, especially the Obama administration, come to the conclusion that uh, in in weighing up uh, the dictators versus Islamic government, the dictators would probably serve their interests much more than uh, a Muslim Brotherhood led government. So let me start with. Um whether European countries, Western countries in general, uh, Western governments in general, um, kind of supported the dictators after 2013 or whether it was, it was more born out of cynicism. Look, it is, it's definitely the case that for certain countries, uh, I mean, because we can't look at the entire Western bloc as, as one foreign policy. This is actually something which is frustrating for us who try to kind of engage them. Uh, especially when it comes to Europe, because you have, um, you know, you have the, the European Union, but the European Union does not have a uniform foreign policy. Different countries have different foreign policies and different legacies, etc., uh, in the region. Um, but uh, in my experience, in many cases, the fact that they thought uh, we had, we'd rather kind of get used to the dictators. A lot of it was more cynicism than a wish for stability. I think after, especially after 2013, 2014, the rise of, uh, of ISIS 
Uh, and then after that, you had, you know, the rise of Mohammed bin Salman and, you know, the, uh, the, the, the instability that he created as well. Um, you know, war in Yemen, uh, the boycott, basically the, 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 the blockade of Qatar, um, you know, uh, the, the support, for example, for the strong, strongman rule in Libya and in, uh, and in Egypt. It was clear by then, it, I think it's very clear, especially for people who I meet within foreign departments, it's very clear that they do not really buy anymore the idea that dictatorship brings the stability. Maybe this was a narrative that they had, um, you know, certain people had maybe in 2013, but certainly I don't feel it, I don't, I don't find it at all in 2020. Uh, maybe some of them do, uh, maybe they just don't, uh, you know, they don't say that to me when they meet me, but at least now I feel that it's not really support rather than cynicism. What I mean by cynicism is this idea that, uh, you know what, uh, let, let's talk about Mohammed bin Salman, for example. Let's say, let's say we're talking about Saudi Arabia, because you know, eventually you're not going to talk about the entire region. You're going to be talking about individual countries. That's another uh, complicating factor here. So, so when you say, for example, you know, why do you sell weapons, for example, to Saudi Arabia? Or why do you maintain trade relations with Saudi Arabia when you, when you see that this person is up to no good? And uh, sometimes the answer is more like, it's not like, you know, he's going to bring stability because I think you'd be crazy to say that actually those dictators bring stability. I think nobody, no serious person at this point in 2020 is going to say that dictatorship still brings stability. Rather, what they say is, you know, he's the king. He's about to be king. His crown prince is going to be king. And if he's going to be king, he's going to be king for 20 years. And he does, doesn't seem to be any serious opposition to him. So, you know, we can't really, you know, check out from the region for 20 years. So we might as well engage. So it's really born more of um, cynicism about any, any change happening. Uh, and really, there's also this uh, almost um, uh, crisis in foreign policy thinking because they don't know, like basically, uh, the, there was like two options before, two extremes, let's say. One of them is let's engage bad regimes. Like let's say that there's a regime which is bad, terrible, for example. Even we're talking for an Iranian regime, for example. Uh, terrible human rights record, et cetera, problematic foreign policy. But uh, there is this school of thinking that says, let's engage them, let's trade with them, uh, because if we engage with them, we will have some leverage. And then if we have some leverage, we'll be able to push for some kind of reform. And then there's the other uh, um, uh, school of thinking, which is let's isolate them and let's even pressure them. And maybe even let's actually uh, pressure them militarily and even maybe invade. Uh, and both of these have crisis. You know, both of them are problematic because if you engage dictators, you actually legitimize them, and sometimes you actually make them worse. And a lot of the time, when you actually invade them, etc., you also—I mean, Iraq War, for example, is a good example. You actually you don't get a better outcome uh, that way either. So I think this this idea that uh, Western nations or Western governments have willingly chosen the dictators for the sake of stability—I don't think that's valid anymore. It may have been valid in 2013, but I don't think it's valid anymore. Um, but then let's let's get back to the second point, which is that you know Islamism is inevitable. Uh, again, this is not really born by by recent experience in the region, because when you look, for example, at uh, I mean, let's look at the last five years rather than 2013. So it's true. I mean, even if you look at the of, at the Muslim Brotherhood rule in Egypt, so uh, Mursi won. Uh, and of course, I, in 2012, I was actually tabulating. I was uh, very much involved in uh, in uh, in uh, uh, doing kind of civil society 
observe observation to the electoral process. So, you know, I actually put together a team where we're tabulating the, the vote count as it comes, etc. Um, and I remember that in the first round of elections, I, I forgot, but basically the, the, the person who was running against Morsi, he was basically the, 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 the last prime minister hired by Mubarak, who was basically a regime figure, Shafi, uh, his name is Shafi. They they were uh, you know they they kind of prom- they they went past the first round to the second round but let's look at the first round so first of all so just to see how true is it this narrative that Islamic rule or Islamist uh, rule is inevitable in the first round there were five uh, candidates who received more than ten percent of the vote uh, out of these of course there was two uh, Islamists. Uh, being uh, Mursi and Abu Futuh. Abu Futuh was an ex-Muslim Brotherhood figure who had left the Muslim Brotherhood early in the uprising. So I think in uh, I think as early as January or February he left the Muslim Brotherhood and he formed his own party. Um, and he was uh, considered more centrist rather than you know uh, Islamist at the time. Uh, his coalition included even people who were, you know who did not consider themselves Islamists. And then you had, uh, you know, figures who were considered to be more non-Islamist, uh, but revolutionary, uh, you know, such as, uh, again, I, I forgot the names, um, uh, you know, it's such a long time ago, and I think a lot of these people are no longer politically active and not even, not even, not, not even politically relevant anymore. Uh, and then you had certain figures who represented the old regime. And one of them, of course, was Shafi. And... Uh, you know, the, the, the person who got the most out of them, of course, was basically Muslim, uh, uh, sorry, the Muslim brother candidate was Mursi and also Shafi. I think they both got uh, above 20%. But then you had five candidates who got more than 10%. So the, the vote was not exactly crushingly pro-Mursi. It was more distributed among 10 candidates, sorry, among five candidates who represented different visions. Um, and when you counted the vote share, like if you said, okay, out of these, out of the five, out of the, the, those five candidates, how does, how does the proportion go? It almost goes third, third, third. Uh, almost like one third would, was, were voting for someone who had an Islamic or Islamist background, and one third were pro, you know, some, someone who represented the old regime, and one third were kind of like non-Islamist, uh, but also you know, pro-revolution kind of opposition. Um, and so it was only by virtue of first past the post, which, you know, we can get back into it, but I think electoral systems, uh, as far as electoral systems go, I think first past the post is a pretty terrible system to use in a highly partisan, highly polarized society. It actually makes it even more polarized. And I, unfortunately, this is what happened in Egypt. So I guess what I'm saying is that if we did not have first past the post, if we had some other kind of electoral system, such as, you know, um, uh, preferential vote, for example, where you know you don't only say I want this person, and you don't have runoff elections, but rather you say you rank uh, uh, which uh, which uh, um, uh, candidate you want, you know, in order. I think we wouldn't have had Morsi win. Maybe someone who's more centrist, such as Abul Futur, would have won. And of course, we can argue that Abul Futur has also had an Islamic uh, Islamist background. But again, you know, at the time he was he really represented something that's more centrist than, rather than Islamist. Um, so I don't think that, I mean, the whole narrative, the narrative was employed uh, eventually that says that the Muslim Brotherhood winning the election proved that any time you have elections in this region, you're going to have a uh, Muslim Brotherhood type uh, uh, government. 
and of course the this the, the dictators and also the neo-colonialists used this to say that we cannot give these people democracy because if we have democracy we're going to have muslim brotherhood rule and uh, you know again we can we can get back into what is muslim brotherhood rule because again the muslim brotherhood rule like in a sense you know the tunisian uh, nahda party are also you know have muslim brotherhood roots but they have they, they represent a very different political vision um, and so like even the word i mean even when we say muslim brotherhood rule i think we have to kind of unpack that and kind of say what what do we even mean by that uh, but then if you go back, I mean, I mean, again, you look at, for example, Libya, where you have, uh, uh, you, we, we had, you know, they had free and fair elections, uh, at least, you know, I think this was, 20, I think this was 2012, um, you know, after, you know, after the ousting of Gaddafi, I don't remember the dates ex exactly, of course, this is before the, 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 the civil war really got really bad. And, uh, you know, the Islamists did not really win a landslide. I mean, they went, went, went some, they won some, like, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, Party did not really win by a landslide. They, they, they got, of course, a sizable number of seats, but they did not really win by a landslide. Uh, the same kind of, kind of goes in Sudan, because Sudan, you had an actual Islam, like the Omar al-Bashir actually employed, he, he ruled as an Islamist party leader, at least for a while. I mean, of course, uh, he, he fell out of favor with his own party, and eventually he ruled as an absolute dictator. Again, this was interesting because in Sudan you have an uprising uh, by a majority Muslim population against someone who ruled in the name of an Islamic narrative. Um, the same kind of happens in Iraq because Iraq, again, is, is ruled by a coalition of different Islamist uh, parties, of course, a lot of them being Shia Islamists. Um, so I don't really believe that uh, this narrative that says uh, that if we give them uh, uh, democracy, or if they allow them democracy, uh, then it's going to be inevitably a Muslim Brotherhood type uh, situation. I don't think that's true. I do believe, of course, that Islam continues and will continue to be the cultural language uh, and even the political language, part of the political language of the region. Uh, this is this is a fact. I mean, we are we are uh, you know a majority Muslim population. This is a fact. Uh, but I don't think. I mean, they they have they have changed the narrative to make it sound like if you give, if you have elections anywhere in this region, it's going to be Muslim Brotherhood. And I think that's simply not true. Well, that leads to uh, uh, a question really about Egypt and, and what went wrong in, in Egypt for Morsi. So the narrative is that uh, Morsi represented a, an overtly Islamic group and um, it uh, uh, tried to change the constitution and it, it attempted to, uh, to, um, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, apply a modest range of Islamic um, uh, policies upon the populace, and within a year, the uh, the deep state, uh, the the uh, remnants of the old regime, uh, they worked to undermine Morsi and and remove him from government with the tacit approval, I suppose, of as you said, Saudi Arabia and UAE, who were um, uh, more than happy to support uh, General Sisi, but also. The Americans who um, were alarmed by the uh, the the, um, uh, the Islamist roots of the the current uh, Egyptian government and um, worked uh, with the uh, with the regimes of Saudi Arabia and UAE to uh, to undermine Morsi uh, Morsi's gains and to um, uh, and to replace him with uh, with in effect an authoritarian uh, government. I mean, to what extent do you accept that narrative? 
Well, um, initially when, uh, so uh, let me go back to 2011 because really the first split in the opposition, and I remember, you know, in, in, in earlier in our, con in our conversation, we came to this point about, you know, what, what do you need to actually push away at an entrenched system of oppression? Uh, and I said, you need to build as big a coalition as possible. Uh, building a coalition is very important here because if you want to build, if you want to push against something that's a really deeply entrenched system, you need, you know, everyone has to push in the same direction. And if there's a split in the opposition, um, then, you know, it's going to create a situation where uh, the, these very deeply entrenched systems that have, you know, had power for a very long time and they have, you know, they have the guns, they have the weapons, they have uh, the international uh, relations and they have, uh, you know, all the money and they run the economy, uh, it's easy for them to push back uh, if they find an opening. And for that reason, I was uh, critical of the Muslim Brotherhood's early role, especially, you know, uh, right after Mubarak's, uh, the fall of Mubarak. So if you remember, I mean, I, I mentioned that uh, Abdul Manam Abu Futuh, who was one of the presidential candidates, and he, again, came from a Muslim Brotherhood background, and he eventually quitted. Uh, you know, he uh, he resigned his position as a Muslim Brotherhood uh, member, and he formed his own party. Um, he was of the position that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood should not overtly enter politics. Uh, the reason being that we have to build as big a coalition as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it is fair or not, whether it could be, it could be entirely unfair, but it's a, it's a fact that during the latter years of the Mubarak era, uh, one of the most important things that Mubarak did, one of the most important tactics that he had was to, uh, uh, paint the opposition as Islamic extremists uh, and paint the Muslim Brotherhood as basically, you know, ba basically he has to, you know, you know, 10% of the population of, uh, of Egypt, probably more than 10% are Christians. Um, and so part of, part of the narrative he employed was, uh, you know, you cannot trust these guys and these guys are going to bring together, bring, uh, they're going to build another tyranny and they're going to oppress Christian and Christians and they're going to oppress women, etc. So he created this narrative uh, that, uh, of course, you know, if you're in the opposition and you don't really have a lot of uh, power, you really can't push back against the government, a government which controls everything. Um, I personally was in the position that, you know, once Mubarak is gone and once the people have the power to decide uh, who gets to rule uh, next, I, I thought that the Muslim Brotherhood should actually not enter politics and should say, we have done our role. Our role was to uh, give this country political agency, and we are we're going to continue to be a strong social institution. We're going to continue to uh, you know to uh, to do our work, uh, whether it is da'wah, whether it is social work, whether it is intellectual work. But we are not going to actually enter politics directly. I think that would have been a better choice for the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, mainly because you know for for these two reasons. For I guess for the first reason is you don't want to create a split in the opposition. Uh, you want to build a big coalition in order to push together to make sure that the deep state, as you mentioned it, as you as you called it, uh, actually recedes, actually you know, actually uh, 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 you know, is pushed back. Uh, but also, I guess not to not to create a partisan situation where it's really instead of being uh, everybody pushing together to make sure that we actually have a successful transition where these people, this nation, is going to have political agency. Uh, Rather, it becomes a fight over who get, who has power. Uh, 
And the moment that happens, and the moment you know people people who are supposed to be allies become enemies, uh, you know everything every, everything really heads south. So what happened really over 2012, especially, and I remember uh, when I when I go back and I read the stuff that I was writing, and especially in late 2012, I was extremely pessimistic. Uh, I was pessimistic, especially at the rising partisanship and the polarization that was really, really, really you know disturbing and really painful because I had friends on both sides. And I could see that, you know, people were starting to really hate each other. And I'm like, this cannot end well. I mean, if when the citizens in the country hate them, hate, you know, their own brothers and sisters this much, uh, th this, this creates a, a, a situation where, you know, the dictators can strike so easily, can strike so easily. And this is exactly what happened because they created a situation where, you know, it, you know, uh, uh, earlier, I told you, like, in the first round of the elections, you had three camps, right? You had, like, non-Islamist opposition, who are also pro-revolution. You had the Islamist uh, pro-revolution camp. And you had uh, the pro-government uh, camp. And it's kind of like, it's not exactly one-third to one-third, but it was like, you know, if you count the shares, it's not exactly, you know, scientific, but it's kind of like you say that there are three forces in here. So long the non-Islamist opposition and the Islamist opposition were pushing together, they were getting results. But the moment that camp fell up against each other and the polarization became so, so deep, that's when the, the counter-revolutionary axis had the, 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 the opportunity to strike. So I guess my criticism really was not so much for the policies. I mean, we can get back to the policies, but really they didn't really have a lot of policies, the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and it is true that they had, uh, you know, they they were uh, constantly thwarted by by the quote unquote deep state. <coughs> uh, but I guess my main my main uh, 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 criticism for them is that they were they did not try to build bridges. They did not try to basically unite this opposition, uh, especially if you, if you know. I guess a lot of people don't remember that era, but you know, because we were plugged into the space and. Uh, I would. I was listening to like uh, Egyptian radio and TV shows, and I was listening to the narrative coming from both sides. And the even the pro-Muslim Brotherhood figures were extremely polarizing. They were very, very polarizing. And that really, like, it, it was a depressing period of time. Late 2012, early 2013. We knew that, you know, this is going to end badly. But uh, uh, you know, uh, b before I hand it over to you, and I know you might have a follow-up. Um, the U.S. role is not exactly clean over here. In other words, it's not so much, I mean, uh, you know, like uh, uh, there are several books that were written about this that kind of explored what exactly was the U.S. role over here. The U.S. really was not so much anti-Muslim Brotherhood or even pro-Sisi uh, as much as simply like the Obama administration really was simply tired of the region. Uh, Obama wanted to pull back, and he wanted, like, he he came to power with a promise that he wants to bring back the troops from from the Iraq War. He didn't want any foreign entanglements, um, and so initially, when uh, uh, you know, when the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia started their plan, and I think you know, uh, the way that you described it is that the deep state kind of moved, and there was tacit approval from the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. I think that the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia had more agency than we think. Uh, they were not simply tacitly approving. I think they actually were very much part of the whole uh, conspiracy here. Um, and we can see that they continue to, to play a very important role in kind of reshaping the region, et cetera, which we'll probably come back to. 
Uh, I don't think the United States, the, the worst thing the United States did here was really supporting them, but rather not curbing them. I mean, they could have stopped them. They could have said, we, you know, this is a red line. We're not allowing you to do this, but they did not, they did not do that. And when uh, events happened and there was a coup in Egypt, I don't think the coup itself was uh, U.S. Uh, approved, but rather the United States went along with it. Rather than push back, they kind of went along with it. Um, and eventually they kind of like, you know, late 2013, if you remember, there was also this whole thing about, you know, let's have a, a, a deal with Iran, which is why they also did not like, even though they, they, there was this, uh, you know, chemical weapons massacre. So there was like one week, right? Uh, you had the Rabah massacre in, in Egypt. And then one week later, exactly seven days later, I think there was the, the chemical weapons massacre in Syria. Uh, and I think these two events, like very bloody events and very traumatic events, uh, were read by by the West, especially by the United States, as the, as saying, "This is a useless region. We don't want to get involved here. Let's just let them do what they want to do, and uh, you know, let's just pull back." Uh, so I think the U.S. role was not really uh, pushing in the direction of autocracy, but rather not pushing enough in the opposite direction and being cynical and saying, "You know what?" Throwing their hands in the air and saying, "You know, we're not going to get involved in this." Well, let's then move on to Syria, and, and um, uh, of course, Syria is a very miserable episode, actually, in in the history of the Arab Spring uh, of the last decade. And um, we've uh, we've seen uh, what was uh, initially a, a very optimistic revolution turn into something quite uh, quite distasteful. And and um, as you said at the very beginning, uh, the um, uh, Syria today remains and and is a a failed state in in many ways and and uh, large parts of Syria uh, is uh, is now a, a wasteland and and uh, many Syrians uh, uh, many millions of Syrians are, are refugees either internally displaced uh, in in their, displaced in their country or uh, or uh, are now in in Europe and and the surrounding uh, region. Um, what went wrong in your mind in Syria? So, I mean, uh, before we get to Syria, I guess I want to take a look at Libya because there is an important uh, comparison to be made here. So, early, very early in the Arab Spring, um, the, you know, the, the narrative that existed around the region, within the region, I'm talking like I lived within the region and, uh, you know, I have only lived within the region until this point. Uh, the overwhelming narrative uh, was that these dictators are here to stay and that these dictators can never be removed except by violence. Uh, I certainly believed it, and even people in the West believed it, and a lot of people within the region believed it. Uh, and this is why, of course, this uh, created, uh, created uh, certain dynamics that benefited uh, Islamist militant groups, because Islamist militant groups were kind of saying, we are, like, we are waging a jihad, uh, and we have to wage a jihad. It has to be military because only violence can remove dictators that are disentrenched. Um, and certainly, as I said, a lot of people actually believe, even people who opposed Islamist militants also believed that violence is the only way. The, the, there's no way that these regimes can just, be, you know, can, can just fall on their own. You need to actually employ violence to remove them. Um, and so when the uprising uh, uh, in Tunisia succeeded, it was a great shock to the psyche, in, you know, a psychological shock to you know, 400 million uh, uh, Arabic-speaking uh, citizens across the region. It was an absolute shock. It's like we really never imagined that simply people 
non-violently taking to the streets can actually remove one of those really, really deeply entrenched dictators. It was a shock. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I have my own background. I mean, after the, the Iraq war, I was kind of radicalized. Uh, so there was actually a period of time in which I actually believed in Salafi jihadism. Uh, but I had maintained, you know, my uh, in my reading diet, you can say that, you know, I still would uh, kind of I I would know which uh, which forums and which uh, websites to see to, to 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 go to to gauge the reactions of people who still believe in this this you know uh, militant uh, uh, narrative, which basically is you know saying that violence is the only way, and that confusion was also there. They were also very very confused. Um, when this happened again in Egypt, and then it rolled across, and you see the entire region erupt in uprisings, and these uprisings are actually getting somewhere, uh, this created a serious uh, crisis in the jihadist narrative. And if you remember in May of 2011, that's also when Osama bin Laden was, was, uh, was assassinated by the United States. So this was an extreme shock over there, because suddenly, uh, you know, these militant groups are saying violence is the only way, violence is the only way, violence is the only way. And as much as they try to employ violence, uh, the, the, the dictators are getting stronger and stronger. Uh, and the, they're getting more and more support from the world. And uh, the violence has become basically like, in order to actually hurt the regime, you have to fight uh, foot soldiers who, you know, a lot of them, uh, you know, in, in many cases are employees basically you know employees of the employees of the of, of the dictator so you're not really you're hurting the dictator themselves it becomes simply a civil war um so i want to set this up basically for the war of ideas about the whole idea of violence uh, and then i want to point to libya libya the libyan uprising of course happens in uh, uh, in february of uh, uh, of 2011 uh, and very quickly, this uprising, it starts as, you know, nonviolent uh, protests, etc., but very quickly it becomes militarized. The reason why I think this is significant for us to understand Libya, because if we want to look at Syria, is because Lib in Libya there was an intervention. There was an international intervention, there was a NATO intervention um, that uh, initially, of course, the mandate of the intervention was to prevent uh, 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 Gaddafi from committing, uh, you know, a massacre in Benghazi. And I remember it very, very, uh, you know, very closely because I was very much involved with, uh, you know, people on the ground, uh, and I was very, very much concerned for my for friends that I had in Benghazi, and you know, uh, really I was thinking, you know, maybe this is the last day I, I, I hear from them. And there was one of them actually who who uh, was shot dead the first day, named Muhammad Nabus. I think a lot of Libyans would recognize the name. Uh, but what's interesting here is that. I always wondered, what if there was no intervention on Libya? Uh, what if, I mean, because again, Libya very quickly became a civil war, and it became one party versus another party, and it became one party which was like, you know, Gaddafi, pro-Gaddafi, and the other party which was basically anti-Gaddafi. Uh, and very quickly we were, we were uh, kind of drawing maps, uh, maps of Libya saying, you know, zones of control, etc. So it's kind of reminiscent of what happened in Syria later. I believe that if there was no uh, intervention in Libya, we would have had a Syria-like situation in Libya. In other words, people who were supportive of the of the status quo would have supported Gaddafi with weapons and with uh, you know with uh, with ammunition and with you know, logistical support, etc. While the people who are pro you know you know pro changing the status quo would have supported the other sides. 
and we would have kind of like a Libya, like, like a Syria-like situation in Libya and, uh, you know, a proxy war in, in Libya. And unfortunately, this is actually eventually what happened with Haftar. Uh, it happened much later, though. Um, reason why I'm, I'm pointing to this is because in, certain, in a certain sense, something like the Syria theater was kind of, uh, you know, inevitable. Uh, and I remember in 2012 when we were like doing kind of uh, uh, workshopping potential what might happen in Syria. I think I created a, uh, uh, a decision tree in March of 2012, uh, thinking, you know, what are the options? What's going to happen in this country? Um, and uh, eventually it, it, it forked to, to different uh, options and all of the options really were terrible uh, because we knew that, uh, you know, more and more forces are going to enter this theater. They're going to either support Assad or support the opposition to Assad. This is going to become increasingly militarized. And because of the, the vacuum in the region, that's going to create a situation where terror groups such as ISIS can, uh, can exploit the situation, you know, because there's, there's large areas of the country that were outside of, uh, of any control. Uh, and eventually we're going to have, uh, you know, uh, a split country. And this is unfortunately what happened. If we go back to uh, why this happened, um, I think I think you know a lot of the people would uh, I mean a lot of the narratives employed were kind of like were the Syrians ready to rise? I think that's the wrong answer, the, the wrong question. I think the right question is was the world ready? Was the world ready for Syrians to rise? Because the world at the time did not have any mechanisms to support such an uprising. We didn't really, like, even the world did not have the right framework to think, like, of something that did not really imagine happening, which is a, a grand popular uprising, a, a groundswell of support against uh, someone who was as entrenched as Assad. And we know that Assad ruled by force, his father ruled by force, it's extremely brutal regime, and we know that he, they would not do anything to stay in power. Uh, and so the more this became sectarianized, it became milita militant, it became... Uh, really about one sect versus another sect. Uh, Assad had, you know, had a lot of tools at his disposal. Uh, you know, he had uh, certain a kind of uh, uh, exploitation relationships with Islamic group, Islamic groups uh, going back to the Iraq War. You know, for example, in 2004, 2000, uh, between 2004, I think, I, I believe, until 2007 or so, um, a lot of the uh, Islamist uh, extremists who were crossing the border into Iraq and fighting the United States in Iraq, we're doing so with full collaboration with Assad. A lot has been written about this. So he had kind of um, an exploitation. He was able to exploit the fact that he had a lot of militants locked up in prison. Um, and he was able to turn this uprising from an uprising against him to a sectarianized kind of uh, situation where he kind of like uh, uh, was able to create a situation where groups such as ISIS are going to rise because he knew that if he creates a situation of me versus ISIS, the world is going to say, you know what, we'd rather, we'd, we'd rather not have an I ISIS and maybe we will tacitly support you. And this is exactly what happened. I mean, let me pick up on that point you make about the Syrian revolution. I mean, do you think the Syrian demonstrators... Uh, the civil society actors that initially began the protests, uh, do you think they were naive to accept uh, the conflict to become a, an asymmetric military conflict? I think there's a fundamental, there's, there's one thing that we need to look at, I think, which is uh, the depth of institutionalization of each regime. So 
you mentioned, for example, the deep state in Egypt. Uh, and I think this is actually an important concept to, to look at. There are certain regimes which, uh, which have uh, an institutionalization structure or an institutionalization level which allows the regime itself. In other words, the regime is bigger than the, the dictator himself. Uh, and so the regime can survive even if the, the dictator is removed because the, the, the keys to power are still held by, like in Egypt, it's the army establishment. Uh, we've seen the situation in Tunisia, for example, where Ben Ali was removed, but the country did not fall apart. Mubarak, again, again, Mubarak was removed, the country did not fall apart. On the other hand, when you look at uh, Libya, when Gaddafi was removed, the country absolutely fell apart. So there's differing levels of uh, institutionalization there. Some uh, dictators have been very paranoid and they collected power, they centralized power to such a degree that you know, once you remove them, you create a situation where nobody's in charge. Absolutely nobody's in charge. Um, this was the case in, in Libya, definitely. And this is why Libya descended into this kind of uh, situation very quickly. But this was also the, 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 the situation in Syria. And you know, if you remember in Syria in the early days, when uh, uh, Assad uh, uh, forces were kind of kicked out of a lot of, uh, of Syria, the people of the villages had to actually run their cities on their own. They even, ha they even had to you know, uh, uh, run the schools and run the police stations and run the fire stations and you know, create their own governance structures, etc. Because in one, in one swoop, the whole governance structure kind of just fell apart. Uh, so I think it's not just a matter of looking at what the protesters should have done or should not have done. It's also looking at the nature of the regime. Uh, forget and This is a conversation that was very much alive in 2011 and 2012. It's true that the Arab Spring um, uh, encompassed so many different countries, up to 20 countries. But I think it's important to remember that each country has its very unique history, very unique regime, very unique uh, you know, uh, uh, struggle. So I think one of the keys to understanding what happened in Syria is really uh, the nature of the regime itself, uh, the nature of the regime, the kind of the, the degree of centralization and corruption of that regime, and the fact that the regime, uh, uh, you know, once it was gone, there was an absolute vacuum. Um, of course, you know, you look at the situation, there's pros and cons, because you know, in the case of Egypt and in the case of Tunisia, uh, yeah, you didn't have such a complete breakdown in public services. You know, someone else is running the show. But then there's a bad side to this, which is that uh, you know they continue to be uh, you know they continue to to be playing spoilers behind the scenes, which is what the army establishment continued to do under Mercy, and then you know coming back and ruling in the face you know and uh, putting 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 to putting forward the face of Sisi. Uh, but then in Tunisia you have a different situation where you know like they actually said you know they made the choice that we don't want to. Uh, we're not going to sacrifice the country for the sake of Ben Ali, and they basically said, you know, Ben Ali, you can you can leave, and they decided to stand aside and allow a democratic transition to 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 come up, to to uh, uh, to proceed. We have kind of a situation like this arising in in uh, Saudi Arabia, where Saudi Arabia basically was like the 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 power basically was the ruling family, and you have MBS uh, consolidating power to such a degree that um, you know. Saudi Arabia is actually becoming so centralized that this might be might be becoming a fragile uh, regime now. Uh, but but you know not to stray too much away from the point. But I think uh, definitely you know any any kind of tactic, whatever the strategy or the tactic would have been in Syria, 
it still would have been very difficult. Uh, but again, I say it was not inevitable because once uh, 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 Assad decided that he's going to wage war and he's going to ensure that this is going to be a war because he does not want to face his people on the streets when they are protesting. He wants it to be a war because, you know, they want to make it about war because they have a lot of guns. They have like, if it, you know, it's kind of like a situation where if you want to face an enemy, uh, it's always better for you to face the enemy when uh, on, on a, uh, you know, uh, on a ground where you have the upper hand and avoid fa facing the enemy on a ground where they have the upper hand. So the whole idea of when, when we say that we want nonviolent struggle is really, it's about strategy in the end. Because if we make it violent, they have a lot more guns than us. And, you know, there's no way that we, we're going to win if it's violent because they're, they simply have, like, they have armies, we don't. Which is why we say that, you know, we, it should be nonviolent because there's, there's, there's enormous strategic benefits to this. Uh, you're forcing the, the, your adversary over here into a ground that they have a disadvantage in. So it's, it's logical for Assad, from a strategic point of view, to want to make it about violence, because if he makes it about violence, he has the upper hand. Uh, I think, I believe at that point, especially when he started bombing cities and he started dropping barrel bombs and he start, started, you know, it, it, it became an absolute slaughterhouse, uh, the world should have intervened. I mean, if the world was serious about human rights, it was, it was serious about the, 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 uh, the values that it, it, it uh, claimed to have. Unfortunately, of course, it turns out to be an extremely hypocritical world. Um, but if they were serious about this, they would have stopped, they would have at least implemented some kind of no-fly zone. I mean, what the opposition, no one in the opposition at the time was actually asking for, for a military intervention. They were not saying that we want, we want you to send troops in. What they were saying is, stop, uh, you know, uh, take measures to prevent Assad from using uh, uh, his air force. And we, we will do the rest of the job. We will take care of the rest. Simply stop him from using his air force to bomb our cities. Uh, you know, the, it, it was important because, you know, it was also a matter of proving that Syrians can, govern, that Syrians can govern themselves. And, you know, they were actually trying to govern themselves. Uh, unfortunately, that did not happen, and of course, the the rest is history. And it was it's a, it's a sad tragedy, but also it was extremely damaging to the world order. You have like the rise of ISIS, you have the rise of the refugee, like a refugee wave after the other. You have enormous human suffering, and you have this uh, this uh, uh, vacuum that was exploited by several actors, of course, by ISIS, by uh, Putin, by the Iranian regime and its militias, etc. So it's a, it's you know it's it's not really. I don't point the finger at the Syrians. They did the best they could. I point the, 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 the fingers really at the very hypocritical world order. Now let's talk about the future, Iyad. Uh, we've seen a decade of chaos in the Arab world. And as you quite rightly say, uh, this uh, decade uh, is the start of something and this transition uh, to, um, uh, to a better place, uh, to, you know, uh, to an end to these dictatorships is yet to uh, uh, reach its natural fruition. Uh, I wonder from your perspective, we've already discussed the role of Islamic groups uh, in the current uh, politics of the region, but uh, what role do you see of Islamic parties and Islamic groups in the years ahead in uh, not only developing the course of the Arab Spring, but also ultimately in the type of political makeup 
that uh, that the Arab world comes to? So I, I would borrow um, uh, something that my late friend uh, Jamal Khashoggi said. If we don't accept uh, Islamist parties, then we cannot have democracy. It's simply as that. Either we have a political system that includes everybody and does not exclude anybody, or we have dictatorship where everybody is under some boot or, or another. Uh, it is simply not possible to have any kind of legitimate democratic system in this region without accepting Islamist parties into the body politic. This, of course, does not mean that, I mean, again, I don't believe that they're actually uh, um, uh, inevitably will win elections. Uh, what will happen really is that uh, uh, we will have a situation where multiple Islamic parties uh, are competing with other parties, which might be socialist or non-Islamist or, you know, or liberal or, uh, or, or nationalist, etc., whatever it is. Um, so I don't believe, actually, I don't believe it's not possible to actually have a democracy if you exclude someone from democracy. It's again, it's against the very concept of democracy. Uh, when it comes to, I mean, your point about liberal parties in, in Syria and Egypt, um, I, I'll just give you my own, uh, you know, my own observation. The first is that there are very few true liberals in, in Egypt. Uh, a lot of the people who are kind of like, uh, you know, were described in Western media as liberal were not actually that liberal. They were simply non-Islamists or anti-Islamists. A lot of them were simply nationalists, you know, like basically pro, you know, pro uh, the, the uh, uh, you know, army establishment, maybe not pro-Mursi, sorry, not pro-Mubarak, but, you know, pro-Sisi. Uh, you know, and to understand this, really, you have to understand the history of Egypt. Uh, Egypt used to be really the center of the region. It used to be the, one of the most important, re really the leading Arab country uh, for a long time, you know, under Nasser and under, you know, for a certain extent until the 1970s. Um, uh, you know, it seemed like Egypt was the center of the world at the time, of this world, of, of this, you know, of its region. Um, and it was really, you know, it, it fell under a very humiliating period, starting from the 1970s, um, maybe even the late 60s. Uh, and so, you know, this does something to your identity. If you're an Egyptian, you kind of remember that my country was, was, was great. My country was uh, a leader. Uh, and you know this never really goes away, and you kind of like you say, I want, I want that uh, that leader who's going to make my country great again, I, and I want this leader who's going to be decisive and is going to be strong and is going to be, and I, it's, I, I'm sure that you understand this. Uh, you know, th this is kind of the same. You see the same thing with the United States, with you know, make America great again, etc. Um, so in a sense. Um, I guess I'm trying to, 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 to do kind of a psychological, more of a psychological rather than a political analysis, but sometimes you know, I'm, I'm actually convinced that we need to read countries on their, own, um, um, on their own terms. So sometimes even if we say this is good or this is bad, sometimes it's not enough to simply say this is good or bad, but we kind of like have to probe and say, where is this coming from? Um, so, I mean, because once you actually like, if you actually take the values uh, 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 of a lot of these people, you find that actually they're simply nationalists, uh, sometimes even chauvinistic nationalists, really. And uh, sometimes they adopt liberal narratives, sometimes nationalists, sometimes, sometimes socialists, and sometimes even Islamic, really. Uh, but in the end, it's really, you know, the psychology is really pushing in one direction in the end. Uh, in Syria, uh, it is true that Islamic parties uh, um, 
played a role. I don't really say parties. It was more like, so for example, one of the earliest um, uh, and most important nonviolent activists um, uh, in Duma, uh, a man called Ghayaf Matar. Um, and he was, he was a religious Muslim, and uh, he believed in a very unique vision for Islam. I mean, he was, uh, you could probably like uh, Google him and know more about him. Of course, he was eventually arrested and tortured to death by Assad. Um, uh, and he believed, you know, he believed in, in, a non, in a nonviolent Islamic narrative. He was not a partisan. He was not Muslim Brotherhood, etc. But basically, he believed, you know, he, he, the values that inspired him were Islamic values. Um, and I think this is important because when we, when we talk about uh, Islamic, I think it's important to, to acknowledge that this is a wide spectrum. It's a very wide spectrum. Uh, it, is not, it cannot be reduced to only one party, uh, be it the Muslim Brotherhood or, or any other. There are many different, I mean, again, I mean, this is a region where Islam is the majority, uh, you know, is, is the majority population. Uh, the people of the region will always be looking forward to Islam to justify whatever it is, uh, you know, that, uh, um, uh, that they believe in, whether it is good or whether it is bad. I mean, as, like I said, Islam is always going to be the language, the cultural language of the region. Um, but it's very difficult to map this onto political in, in, in political terms because you know whenever you have a dictatorship, dictatorships uh, almost obsessively remove kind of like they um, they empty the political scene from any uh, dissidents, any opposition figures. And so uh, at the start of the Arab Spring in 2011, the political scene in both Egypt and, and Syria were really emaciated. I mean, they were really eviscerated. Uh, there were no, you can't really talk of political parties back then. You could talk of individual people, like there were lots of socialists, for example, who were part of the initial uprising. Um, you know, some of them continue to be uh, uh, significant and, you know, influential intellectually, at least until now. But you can't really map this ideologically. Um, and I think, I'm, I'm sure that we'll, we'll come back to the, to the reason in, uh, in a bit, because I, I you know, I, I, I've studied your questions, and there is there is a, a bit to speak about the role of ideology here, because I think that um, it's it's premature to speak about ideology when uh, people don't even have political agency. How about if if um, people call for political agency through ideology, and so uh, if um, uh, the uh, if the masses in in a, in a country, you know, in the case of Syria, fine, you know, it's it's now a uh, you know, it's it's a failed state in many ways, and and the writ of the Assad regime has returned to to the country. But even Syria, you know, if we, we were to argue that the Arab Spring has just begun, and uh, the process of removing the tyrants is is an ongoing process, then um, uh, what would be wrong for um, for for Muslim groups to aspire for change based on Islamic polity and and um, very explicitly state that they want to. Uh, uh, rejuvenate uh, a an Islamic narrative, an Islamic version of history, uh, which uh, which very openly calls for uh, Sharia rule, but at the same time it's a tolerant state and it accepts, uh, like you know much of the Islamic history, accepts um, uh, different religious denominations to to live peacefully in in a uh, under that under that government, and it it accepts. Uh, not to create this sectarian divisions and divisiveness that comes from 
much of the, uh, uh, the, the democratic models that we see um, you know, foisted upon the, the Muslim world. How would uh, you uh, respond to if there was a, a genuine, um, you know, grassroots movement that that called for, you know, an expression of Islam, which which wasn't, which certainly wasn't ISIS. So I, I'll I'll only uh, I'll, I'll let let me go over my own experience because you know I lived this uh, kind of year by year and month by month, very early in the Arab Spring, and this was March of uh, 2011. Um, this is what I thought. I thought, you know, uh, now that we have an actual democratic transition, we need to start talking about ideology. Uh, and in fact, one of my early projects was called the Arab Spring Manifesto. Um, and this is where I, I wanted to, to write a book um, with, in which I explore what I call Islamic libertarianism. Uh, which was kind of my own reading for kind of like what you described. It was kind of uh, imagining what uh, uh, a system that implements Islamic values would look like in the 21st century. Um, and, you know, we were employing, it was like basically me and a, a couple of people who are kind of working on this. And we we're kind of looking at uh, uh, historical precedent. We we're looking at rational arguments. We we're looking at even Western arguments. Um, you know, comparing this, even like comparing and contrasting, sometimes positively and sometimes negatively with Western models, uh, saying, you know, this is where, you know, this is, you know, this is might be the to a topic that Western models got right, and this is a topic that maybe they got wrong. Um, and really, like, really trying to, a lot of it were really raising questions rather than giving answers and saying that this maybe sometimes the question is more important than the answer. This was, this was um, my understanding for um, uh, my work very early on. Um, and, you know, it, when I go back and, and, and read a lot of what I was writing in 2011, 2012, it was really resol revolving around this, the, the need for a, for, a, for a manifesto and a, re a need for um, kind of like really we have to start talking ideology now. Later events convinced me that it was, it was premature. The reason why is because I think that there are three problems that need to be uh, uh, worked out one after the other. The first, the first uh, layer that we need to, like the first problem we need to solve is, the, is what I call the dignity problem. Um, the dignity problem really is about the people accepting and understanding that they actually have political agency, that they deserve better, that they deserve not to live under corruption and tyranny and repression. And they need to, to get up and stand up. And this is, this is, uh, this is the first problem that needs to be solved. You cannot really talk to people about final solutions and you know how the government is going to look, etc. If they don't even believe in their own dignity, if they don't even believe that they deserve to work for something, they don't deserve anything better than than what exists. So that's the first problem that I see. I mean, the first problem that we need to solve is the dignity problem, and and you see that uh, uh, in the narratives that I employ right now. I mean, the current. I mean. 2018, 2019, 2020, I use the word dignity a lot because this is, uh, you know, again, this is the, the fundamental problem that needs to be solved is a dignity problem. In some countries, you see that people actually have risen up. Uh, and so the dignity, at that point, we say the dignity, dignity narrative has uh, borne fruits. And then we can get to the second uh, layer. And the second layer, I believe, is the political agency problem. We cannot be talking about final solutions, ideologies, political parties, uh, manifestos, etc. If the people don't even have political agency, they don't even have the right to vote, because eventually, whatever ideology it is, it will have to be implemented within a framework 
uh, where people can you know can exchange in a free exchange of ideas they can engage with ideas they can they can uh, assess ideas etc so if we don't get to the point where people can actually form political parties have political agendas vote for representatives form you know uh, uh, party platforms create political ideologies and you know try to debate it with the people etc we won't even get to that point uh, so it's only after we solve the political agency problem that's when we start talking about uh, political manifestos and political ideologies etc uh, and it has to be within a framework of where where we say you know we agree that whoever gets the most consent from this population uh, is going to is he's, he's going to be able to um, you know implement his agenda uh, so long the people agree that he continues his agenda. Um, so I'm not I'm not exactly against uh, this idea that you know we have to be talking about ideology. I simply from my own I'm talking my own experience from my own experience. Uh, you you know it's premature to talk about it when you you're kind of putting the, the cart before the horse. And there are certain disadvantages to doing that. I mean sometimes it can be damaging, especially when. Uh, you know, you need to create, like, you know, going back to the whole situation with Egypt, you need to create a very wide co coalition, and you need to root yourself in values, and you need to actually say to your comrades who might not even believe, might not believe in the same thing that you believe in, uh, but they believe in political agency and they believe in dignity. Um, you cannot split the the opposition at that point and say, no, I want to implement my political vision, and if you don't believe in my political vision, then I'm not going to ally with you. Then you're not going to get to the point of political agency, and you're going to create a situation where the dictators are always pushing you back. So, so this is my perspective. Yeah, and I want to uh, understand this point a bit further because I, I, I'm not sure if if there can be a genuine attempt to build political consensus without first developing some form of uh, ideology, even if it's a very broad set of principles around which uh, those activists, in particular, but also those. Uh, who decide that enough is enough and, and they want to uh, they want to develop uh, platforms against the regime. Uh, I wonder whether you can do that without first entertaining the discussion and debate about ideology. I mean, just think about your, your argument about Saudi Arabia is that the, the regime is fragile and the more the MBS regime tries to gut out the different institutions of state, the more uh, that regime... Uh, ends up concentrating power, but uh, but uh, it's uh, at the expense of uh, those institutions that allowed the state to to govern. And so, you know, if if um, if you don't have an counterforce to that that have that have in in place a, a vision for how uh, the state should be run, then you may actually end up with a political vacuum, which leads to its own its own problems and own consequences. I suppose my question really is, can you really have a political program with our ideology? And if you, if you suggest, I mean, you know, there, there has been, there have been debates in the Muslim world now or during the Arab Spring about uh, the, the need to establish a civil state. But from what I can see, that civil state sounds, you know, has a very strong resemblance to a, a democratic liberal state or a liberal democratic state. And so, um, to what extent, you know, are we just uh, calling for ideology, uh, but uh, but in a, you know, and but pretending that there is a uh, something neutral that has been expressed here 
I, I don't, I mean, first of all, let me say, I don't see democracy in, I, I mean, small d democracy, as in the very idea that people can vote and, uh, and can select uh, who rules them and they can select, the, you know, vote in, um, you know, uh, representatives, etc. I don't really believe it's an ideology, but rather the freedom to select an ideology. Uh, I mean, because you can talk about big D democracy, which has actually kind of like uh, a very heavy investment in one model or the other. But you can also talk of a small deep democracy, which is simply the idea that we're going to, people are going to have political agency. They will be able to choose platforms. They will be able to, um, uh, what do you say? Um, because the, the, what is the option? The other option is people don't get to choose. Uh, and that's basically simply tyranny. And that's basically going to set you up for uh, a return. You know, the dictators can very simply want to come back at, at that point. Uh, so I don't really think it's an ideology, but rather the freedom to, of people to select one. Um, now, there have been many attempts to create Islamic platforms and Islamic manifestos uh, over the years, and so far none of them have succeeded. And I think the reason is not just the partisanship matter. It's also that you need to create these platforms in dialectic with reality, which means that you are creating a plan not in the abstract, but actually to be implemented and with an actual realistic chance to implement it. So, for example, if you were take, talking about this in Egypt in 2011 or 2012, it's not theoretical. It's not something that you're saying, you know, I'm going to implement it when I get power. How are you going to get power? I mean, CC is in power, like if you're talking now, for example. Uh, rather, it'll be more like, uh, you know, in, in, in 2012, uh, 2011, it was like, I can actually implement this. If you vote for me, I can actually make this happen and we can actually work on this. Um, so there is, there is a very big difference of you saying, uh, I have a, a, a platform and I have uh, you know, these ideas and I want to implement them when you have a realistic chance of implementing them because what that will do is that it will create a virtuous cycle, which means that you will actually have a dialectic, you will have debates, you will have you know, more people who are interested to come forward with new ideas and new, you know, new perspectives. And you will be able to implement it in reality, and you will see what will succeed, what will fail. You can improve your, you can improve your, your ideology, improve your narrative. There's also the fact that you know uh, society evolves, the world evolves. There are new technology coming up. There's new problems coming up, and you can improve that. You can in, in, include that into your party platform and into your ideology. Um, this happens when you already have political agency. In other words, what I'm saying is that it is more successful. The chance for success for something like this is far more, it's far bigger when you already have political agency. On the other hand, when you actually create this and you kind of uh, focus on this when you don't even have political agency, I mean, I'll give you an example from Saudi Arabia, uh, because, you know, you brought up Saudi Arabia. In the 1990s, there was a number of uh, um, um, uh, prominent opposition figures who went into exile. Um, you know, and they went most, like mostly the, 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 the more famous ones are in, uh, in London right now. Uh, and they focused, yeah, and Saad al-Fagi, and they mostly focused on ideology. Um, but then you look at them today. They mostly focused on ideology. They were very successful in, uh, in uh, you know, creating kind of a base, even inside Saudi Arabia. Um, but then you look at them right now, and the, the people who are actually getting the most, uh, uh, the, the farthest, and they're, you know, they're getting the most done, are actually the new people on the scene. And there are people who are not really entrenched in ideology. They're really talking about, 
uh, you know, technocratic, really a technocratic and value-based view rather than ideological view. And really, uh, even though, like, for example, it, it includes people who come from a, a very deeply Islamic background, such as, for example, Abdullah al-Auda, who, as you know, is the son of, uh, of Salman al-Auda, Sheikh Salman al-Auda. Um, and, you know, in the orbit, you also have a lot of people who are what I consider post-Islamist, uh, which are people who are basically using, uh, they're very much believing Muslims, and they're very much believe in Islam, uh, but they're employing, you know, they're basically employing an Islamic, uh, human rights-based or rights-based narrative uh, rather than a legal-based narrative. Um, and again, we don't know what this will lead into. I'm just saying that this is maybe an ideological transition or an ideological change. We don't know where it's going to lead. And we don't know what they're going to do if, you know, if, if, uh, if they actually are in power. We, we, maybe they don't have specific ideas yet, again, because um, you know, uh, the, the, the main problem to solve right now is really having political agency in the first place. Um, and you see a situation where the people who focus too much on ideology ended up cocooning themselves in an ideological bubble. They ended up really not working a lot with other people who they should be working, uh, working with in order to push together. Uh, and they ended up increasing partisanship and coming across as more interested in their political agendas than in the values, the general values that, you know, this is about freedom, this is about uh, you know, justice, this is about, uh, you know, uh, dignity, etc. So I think it's not really about, I think it's very easy to create a platform based upon values um, and civil society and, you know, uh, kind of technocracy, saying that we're going to run this country in the best possible way uh, and then give the society, again, this Muslim society, a chance to, uh, to heal uh, and to transition and to choose what it wants, what direction it wants to go. Again, it's a, I mean, uh, it's an interesting topic. I mean, there, I think there is an Islamic uh, leader who very early in the Arab Spring wrote a book. Um, and I remember the name, I don't remember his name, but I remember the name of the argument. It was called Siyadat al-Ummah Qabla Tatbiq al-Sharia, which in Arabic means the authority of the Ummah is more important or takes precedence chronologically. It comes before implementation of Sharia. Um, I, don't, I don't remember the, the person's name. I don't think he's someone I politically or religiously agree with. I think he's, he's more of a, employing a Salafi narrative, but it's very important that he, the way he articulated it, he said it's more important for us to actually have political agency before we start talking about the details of implementation. Yad Baghdadi, one last question for you. And I, I know we've, we've spoken for a very long time and I asked the same question really at the end of my conversations with my guests about the Arab Spring. Are you hopeful about the future of the Arab and Muslim world? I mean, when it comes to the question of hope, I think I, I make a distinction between hope and optimism. Uh, and this, this has come, of course, uh, uh, Brother Jalal, from a lot of personal experience. I mean, when you, when you experience a lot of pain, a lot of personal pain, a lot of, you know, you know prison was horrible. And, you know, being in an airport and uh, you know, living in an airport because you have nowhere else to go and losing your country like that, it's also like a very traumatic experience. What happened to my family was also traumatic. Living in a refugee camp, etc. you know, being under protection right now because, you know, very powerful people want to kill me. Um, all of that forces you to really come down and ask the really hard questions about what is most important for you in life. And I, I learned very quickly that there's a difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is kind of a general sense of saying, uh, 
um, I think things are going to, I'm going to have a positive outcome. Hope, on the other hand, is more like your ability to find, to, to turn your compass in the right direction. It's more of knowing that something is worth fighting for. Whether or not you succeed in the end, whether or not you, you, you win, becomes less important. Uh, it's kind of like the, 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 the distinction in, in, our, in, in Islam between al-rida, which is contentment, and, and uh, al-farah, or you know, uh, happiness. You know? The word farah, for example, in, uh, in the Quran is used both in a positive way and in a negative way. You know, happiness or you know, joy. It's used both in a positive and in a negative way. But rida, on the other hand, in our religious tradition in general, is used in a positive way. In other words, you can, be, you can have rida, you can have basically contentment and gratitude in your heart, even when you're sad, even when you're angry, even when you're in pain. You can still have that contentment in your heart. And I think this is what associate, I associate with hope. It's really the idea that some things are worth more than our lives. Some things are really worth it. Um, and, and for this reason, I, believe, I, 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 I continue to be hopeful. I mean, when you, when you look back at even our religious tradition and, you know, um, I find a lot of uh, a lot of uh, inspiration in our religious tradition. Um, you find that you know there are uh, you know there are uh, 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 religious movements and uh, social movements and even prophets who who came to this earth and they were persecuted and uh, in the end they went alone and you know not even no, nobody believed in them. And on the other hand, you have prophets who came and they. Uh, had a lot of success and this kind of as as muslims living in in, in a very uh, turbulent time we kind of look back and say you know does this mean that uh, the the truth the values of a movement depend upon its success or failure i don't think so i don't think it does i think in the end we have to simply say that we have to do as human beings we have to do the best we can we have to align ourselves in the right or towards the right values um, and then we have to leave the results to God in the end, because we are not in control. In the end, we are not in control. Even the dictators are not in, are not in, the, in control. They think that they're in control, but they're not. You know. Um, in a sense, I mean, I look at uh, the, the Corona pandemic, for example. And I'm like, you know, Subhanallah, uh, the, the the most powerful people in the world, and you have something as little as a virus basically turning the whole world upside down, and you know, like. I don't think we would have been talking about, you know, uh, Trump losing the election and uh, dictators losing a very important ally such as Trump um, if we didn't have this, you know, very tiny virus kind of infecting uh, the world and, you know, turning the world upside down. In the end, you know, um, going back to, to, um, to your question, I think we simply have to align ourselves towards true north, towards these values. Um, and we really have to leave the, the, the rest uh, to the divine, really. I mean, we, we are not running the universe. We, we, we aren't. We're simply, we're simply trying to do the best we can. Rabbi Yad al-Baghdadi, it's been fascinating speaking to you today. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep you safe and, uh, and uh, allow you to, um, uh, to achieve success. And, uh, and uh, hopefully, inshallah ta'ala, we will speak sometime soon again. Inshallah. Thank you so much, Allah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.